uh, kind of before I begin, I, I recognize that, that this service will go a little bit longer than normal because we waited 10 minutes to even start with the welcome. And the reason for that um, is because, like I said at the beginning, our screens didn't work. And so we kind of had a call at the last moment. They were working on it for about 30 minutes before the service. But we had a call to where we had the option of having just the uh, music team up front lead us as best they could without words in front of us. Or we could take um, a little bit of added expense, like $4 of ink and paper and a little bit of time to print off words because it is commanded in Scripture to sing. It is, it is nowhere commanded in Scripture, specifically the New Testament, to watch others. And so as, as much as that may have been a chore for some of you, uh, recognize that what God calls us to do is to sing of His glory to Him and also to be reminded of the words that are sung out loud by other saints around us. If you are here and you are lonely this morning, you heard of saints that care about you by singing of God's good praise. If you are here and you are proud this morning, you heard of saints singing of God's glory, not yours. The words were Him. And all the words that were of us or we were of our dependence on Him. Well, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, I wonder if you've ever seen a soap opera. <laughs> you ever seen a soap opera on TV or maybe in your own life? I'm pretty sure I've never seen a full episode of a soap opera all the way through, and I know what they're like. Everyone knows what soap operas are like. Soap operas are intentionally, seemingly unreal dramas where the storyline is purely sensationalized and emotional commotion is actually the plot line. Emotional commotion is actually the point of this soap opera. Now, in our text, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12, our text has within it infidelity, divorce, remarriage, incest, politics, fear, jealousy, malice, revenge, filthiness, lust, ruthfulness, brutality, violence, and a little bit of ungodly remorse. <laughs> what an episode. Quite a dramatic episode, isn't it? Now, and in all of this, there is fallout from one particular thing. All of this seemingly show where this soap opera takes place because of one thing. It is because of one man rejecting Christ. All of that plays out because one man rejected Christ. Rejecting Jesus is the most serious offense you and I can ever commit in our lives. Nothing tops rejecting Jesus. Choosing the wrong school, not even close. Re uh, regretting that job or career you've gone after, not close. Rejecting this person or going away from that relationship, none of those come close to the implications and consequences of rejecting Jesus. And this is what Matthew shows us when he shows us Christ from the 14th chapter of the gospel. And, and it's what he'll continue to do for a while. In chapter 13, uh, you should see Jesus speaking about his kingdom. Jesus was speaking about his kingdom in parable form. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. What's it like? What's the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus tells you again and again through parables about what his kingdom of light, what his kingdom is like. And within all those parables is the kingdom having those who understand it and are part of it and those who reject it and not part of it. All of those parables have those two things, those who reject and those who accept. And now 
you should see, beginning at the end of chapter 13, verses 53 through chapter 15, you should see a series of eight illustrations of those parables. So you can imagine Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom is like, and now Matthew is going to show us what it's like to reject the kingdom of heaven. They show us these illustrations starting in uh, chapter 13 at the end, going through chapter 15. They show us in a series of eight illustrations how the rejection of Jesus happens. Now, last week's passage, people rejected Jesus's divinity and power. And this was amazing to us because these were friends and family who were rejecting Jesus's power. Those who reject Christ, how do they do that? Well, in this case, in our passage this week, we'll see people who reject Jesus because not just of his divinity, but these people in this passage today are rejecting Jesus because of Jesus's message. All right, so if these two go side by side, you can see Matthew and his brilliance understanding this. He's saying people will reject Jesus because of his divinity. And now he's saying people will reject Jesus because of his message, his proclamation, his instruction for all of us. So first, there's a divinity rejected. And second, his very words. In simplest form, you'll see a man named Herod within this passage. Herod hears about and reacts to and rejects then Jesus. And through this remarkable, raging story, you'll see that his rejection of the kingdom's message sends his own life into a spiral. Ultimately, rejecting Jesus leads to fear. It leads to self-deception. It leads to corruption. It leads to destruction. And ultimately, it will lead to your own damnation. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you probably are thinking, I would imagine you're thinking, that seems a little exaggerated. You're saying that if I reject Jesus, my life will form into a state of fear, self-deception, corruption, destruction, and ultimately damnation. That seems like your own little soap opera you're inventing on your own. Seems like a ridiculous thing. And it's understandable for you to think that. But I hope and I ask that you and everyone else around you will notice a couple of things about how we might reject Christ from this text. So notice both Christian and non-Christian. Notice a couple of things with me. First, if you're using notes on the outline provided for you in the bulletin, first, I want you to notice the scope of rejecting the kingdom's message. Think about the scope, the the width of rejecting the kingdom's message. That's what this is all about, rejecting the kingdom's message. Now, too often people pit rejecting the kingdom of heaven against uh, rejecting a particular teacher. Or they reject uh, the kingdom because they reject a particular preacher or philosophy. Or they reject the kingdom because, well, I'm not really a Christian. Or I don't accept Christianity. I think there are other ways that I can live, but no way. The effect of this rejection isn't isolated. It's not like picking a color of paint on a wall or rejecting someone who asked you out on a date. Or even picking a church. Rejecting the kingdom is not like any of those things. And this this text shows that there's a broad scope of rejecting Christ's message that brings on itself. So I, I think there are four things within the first point about how we can understand the scope of rejecting the kingdom. The first thing in point one, I think when we reject the kingdom, there is a heightened sense of paranoia that naturally happens here. Look at verses one through the first part of two. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the news about Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. Has he risen from the dead? Herod here hears about Jesus. 
Maybe some of your translations say that he heard about Jesus' fame. You think about a famous person, him hearing about the fame of Jesus. Other uh, translations might have the word news there. He, it's almost like you could hear a caravan coming and he recognizes that as Jesus and he starts thinking that it must be John the Baptist. And if you don't know much about the Bible or this passage, you can see that something is up in Herod's own mind. He hears about something and he starts to think about something else. He starts to get paranoid about something else that's going on. News about Jesus has reached him, but First, to understand what he's going through in paranoia, we have to understand who Herod is. Herod the Tetrarch in your text. A Tetrarch is a governor, or often called a king, of a particular region of a country. Typically, countries were divided in that, in that area in four different regions. And in this case, we're talking about Rome. And so Herod here, and there are many Herods scripturally. There are various Herods, just how like within this church, there are many different categories of people based on their last names. So when you think of Herod, think of Herod the Tetrarch, not any others. Herod himself is ruling over a fourth of a province. And he himself has a lineage of an angry, tyrannical ruler and relatives. So Herod himself, ruling over this province, has a long line, a long history of angry, tyrannical rulers and relatives. And in his region, part of his portfolio, you think of, okay, if you were to rule over Oklahoma, what kind of categories of people live in Oklahoma? You might have some Irish people, you might have some German people, you might have some Native American people. In Herod's category, he had Jewish people. And, they, and he was known as ruling them unfairly compared to everyone else. And he's also, on top of ruling them unfairly, he is a very pagan person. So you can imagine this religious sect within this area, they have this super pagan king ruling over them, and he seems to attack them again and again. We just see this historically. But while at the same time he is pagan and ruling them unfairly, he's also very local, meaning he rules from a palace with guards and walls and locks at the door. So he's isolated because he's very special. And by that I mean he rules from a set-apart place. Yet news of Jesus, think about this. So here is, here is Herod, isolated. News of Jesus reaches the highest point of the palace himself. This is important to know because Jesus is often uh, doing his ministry in the wilderness and in the outskirts of town. Yet there's something peculiar and amazing about Jesus is because this humble man, this meek and mild person, what he's doing off and the outside seems to reach the very throne of the ruler of that area. He's known all over Israel at this point, even in the halls of true authority and power. So when Herod hears about Jesus, something you can imagine flares up inside of him. Right, I would imagine that if some of you, if you've ever cheated on a test, and 10 years later you got a call from your fifth grade teacher, you might go, she found out. <laughs> right? in, in that same sense, something, just from our text at this point, something happened that Herod did that when he hears about Jesus, he thinks about John the Baptist. Look at what he says. He hears about Jesus and thinks about a dead person. So in the first couple of verses, historically, it was John the Baptist who was dead. And he become, Herod becomes paranoid. Look at what he says. He hears about Jesus, thinks about a dead person. Something about Jesus reminds him of a third character in our passage, John the Baptist. We have Herod, Jesus, and John the Baptist. So historically, John the Baptist is dead. And in paranoia, what does Herod do when he thinks about John the Baptist? 
Not that he's dead, but he must be coming back from the dead. He must be, he must be after me. Something flares up inside of him. And so we, we see within this that rejecting the kingdom and the message of the kingdom, this causes paranoia. The remorse over guilt of sin never leaves. We all know deep down that if someone high and holy were to show up, we'd remember that we are not perfect. All of us, if you go into an important event and there's someone there who is super important, what do you immediately do? Check your clothes, check your hair, fix your makeup, whatever, because it's like that person's important. I don't want to look like a you know, less important person. And here we have Herod acting through a life of paranoia. And all of us, we encounter this text recognizing that we're not holy either because we have sinned. And his, but Herod's sin seems specific. So we can, we can kind of empathize with him, recognizing that here is Jesus, the news of him, and he immediately thinks of his own sin, but his sin seems specific, and it seems specific about John the Baptist. And you'll see in verses 3 through 12 why Herod responded to Jesus in this way, and it's this. Uh, we'll see later, but Herod had actually intentionally killed John the Baptist, and so he is fearful that John the Baptist, who had once died, is he back from the dead, and he's coming back for vengeance against me. So at this point in the passage, after verse 2, going into verse 3, the text will actually shift gears. So if you're thinking of the, if you're thinking of the structure of the text, you might have just gone cleanly from verse 2 and verse 3, and you go, that seems to be a hard shift there. I want you to notice that, that what happens in verse 3 is there's a shift in the text that actually is a flashback. So verses 1 and 2 is happening right now, and then after verse 2, Herod is remembering, or Matthew is having Herod remember for us in a flashback way. So the scope of rejecting the kingdom isn't just in the heart, but actually it has effect that comes from the heart. So we have uh, a couple of points here. In point 1, the scope of the kingdom is paranoia, but also in point 1, so 1b, there is sin involved in rejecting the kingdom. I want you to gaze at verses 3 and 4. I won't read them out loud, but gaze at them as I'm reading. This is a flashback of what had previously happened within Herod's life. Herod had seized John the Baptist and thrown him into prison. And this seems pretty random. Why would Herod seize John the Baptist and throw him into prison? Well, our text says, because John said, John the Baptist said, it's not lawful for you to have her. That's what our text explains to us. Why did he throw John the Baptist in prison? Because John the Baptist said, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, what's going on here? I'll get to that in a moment. But John was wrongfully thrown into prison because he, John the Baptist, confronted Herod. He confronted Herod, and then a lady leads them into sin. John had a message for Herod, and Herod rejected that message. John had a proclamation from the Scriptures, and Herod rejected that message altogether. And rejecting the message that John was preaching and teaching is sin. Rejecting the proclamation, the clear teaching from what we call the Scriptures is a sin. And what John was doing was locating the sin that Herod had in his life actually from the text of Scripture. It wasn't morality of the day. It was from the actual text of Scripture. And Herod was so incensed that he was rejecting John. He was so incensed that he was rejecting the Scriptures. You can imagine him saying, how dare you speak out against me? To such a degree that he wanted to put John to death. He sinned and then he kept on sinning. He was rejecting the message. And in keeping with his sin, the story goes on to show that Herod was hosting 
what you can call an orgy. Now in verse 6, it talks about a birthday party. Now birthday parties at this time were not your Chuck E. Cheese festivities. Do not think anything about that. Birthday parties for royalty were male only, strip club style debauchery parties with dancers for hire. And Herod, think about it, Herod had a birthday party for himself. And Herod, his then wife, his wife's daughter, Herod's wife's daughter personally pleased Herod with dancing. So we see kind of the stepping stone of debauchery and disgust. We see that rejecting the message of the kingdom is sin, and it leads to more sin. So the scope of rejecting the message is sinful and broad. And the third thing we see that rejecting the message, the scope of that is it causes fear. John, even in his rejection, was fearful. Look at verse 5. He feared the crowd, even as he was sinning against John the Baptist. Why? Because John was popular. He was known and respected as the prophet. Many were responding to John's message and their lives were changed. This would have had an impact on Herod's own providence here. Herod was sinning, which he thought would give him more freedom, but in his own sin, in his own rejection of the message of God, he was fearful of the masses. But also, fourthly, within this first point, a fourth thing of the scope of rejecting the kingdom is rejecting the kingdom brings on terror. Terror is also the consequence of rejecting the kingdom and its message on others, and we see in this case on Herod himself. As if the story didn't have enough evidence of how awful rejecting the kingdom becomes, a ruthless murder takes place. Terror, in verse 7, picks up where sin leaves off. Herod's stepdaughter had been presented by Herod's wife to personally dance for Herod at his own birthday bash, and he liked it to such a degree that he offered her anything she wanted. Now, in another gospel, we see that it says that he was willing to give her half of his kingdom. And so as an aside, we see here that sin never leads to logic. Here was a man who was finding pleasure in a sinful way, and he was willing to give away half of his kingdom. Sin never leads to logic. It always leads to chaos and insanity. Sin never leads to answer. It always leads to darker problems. So he gives them in the story, he gives her an oath. He says, whatever you want, I'll give you. And we'll look at verse 8. She'd been prompted by her mother, Herodias. There was a setup going on here. There was Herodias, this was Herodias' moment of revenge. Herodias was Herod's wife. He or she set this whole thing up in order to bring down We later see John the Baptist. The daughter says to her stepfather, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Terror is the outcome of rejection of the message of God. John had stood, think about John in this case, John had stood for God's truth. John had stood for God's truth to Herod. And now this woman wants Herod to conquer this prophet. And this is a small recurring theme in the Bible where worldly authority always rejects the words from God's prophets. And even historically in Rome, enemies' heads would be on public display. But in this case, she was asking for his head to be on a platter at a birthday party. Just pure terror reigning out. There's no better proof of an absolute depravity in our own hearts than than in Herod's court. So friends, do you see how these effects have one root cause? Whether it's terror or fear or paranoia or sin, they have one root cause. 
rejecting the message of Jesus. That's what they have, rejecting the message of Jesus. The scope of rejection leads to paranoia, leads to sin, leads to fear, leads to terror. It's an awful thing to reject Jesus. But I want you to notice a second major thing. First, I want you to see the scope of rejection, but I want you secondly to notice the cause of rejection. What's the cause of this? Yes, rejecting the message, but how does that play out? I've somewhat surveyed the text for you. There are two parts, a panic concerning something. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Is this John the Baptist from the dead? But then secondly, a flashback, verses 3 through 12. The the flashback has three major parts to it. It has imprisonment, a party, and a death. That's what what happens in this flashback. An imprisonment, a party, and a death. Almost three long scenes. And I want to dig into the flashback, and hopefully that will show us why Herod panicked in verse 1. This will expose the cause of rejecting Christ. There are two of these here. What are, what are the causes of Herod's rejecting the message of the kingdom? The first one was John's call for holiness in the life of those who hear the message. The first one was John's call for holiness in the life of those who hear the message of the kingdom. Now, I'll assume you don't know, but there are four Gospels. So if you do know, bear with me. If you don't know, there are four what are called Gospels. They're at the beginning of the New Testament. And three of these Gospels are actually very similar to each other on how they're written, what they're exposing. The fourth one, John, is is a little unique and a little bit different. So these are called three synoptic Gospels. These three are similar. But they're different in how they intentionally aim to display Christ to the particular audiences. So for us, it's almost like having three unique, special, and glorious uh, pictures or portrayals of who Christ is. And for Matthew in our gospel today, what he is aiming to do is show that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament has longed for. And he is the Messiah who is fulfilling all that the Old Testament has been longing for. These gospels emphasize things that make a unique point. And in this story, Uh, We don't have much to go with in the case of this party and this imprisonment and then this death, but we can use parts from Mark and Luke that help us us fill in the gap. I say all that to say, if you're looking at this text, I'm saying something that's like, where does he get that? They're coming from different cases in Mark and Luke. I'm not just making them up. But John the Baptist, you need to know, was a super well-known prophet and teacher. He was well-known. All right, think of someone like, I don't know, Billy Graham. Who doesn't know Billy Graham, right? Even after his death. And the cause of Herod's rejecting, rejection was John confronting Herod in a sin. So why did Herod reject John? Because John spoke out against Herod's sin. That's what's going on. But how does this get even deeper? Now bear with me a little bit to explain some of the characters. One of the main characters in this passage is a woman named Herodias. You can see her in verse 3. That's when she first shows up. Herodias, in verse 3, is now Herod's wife. But she wasn't always Herod's wife. Herodias had married her own half-uncle, a man named Philip, who was also in verse 3 of our passage, Herod's brother. So Herodias married her half-uncle, a man named Philip, and she had married her half-uncle Philip and had born with him a daughter in verse 6, who we later know from historical accounts as a woman named Salome. So Herodias and Philip have a daughter named Salome. She's the one dancing at the party. Now this daughter, interesting fact, later would go on to marry her own half-uncle, becoming her mom's sister-in-law and aunt. Now all that to say, this is not a normal family. 
And I don't mean that jokingly. I mean there's already a cloud of, at best, skepticism, and at worst, danger. He wants, now, okay, back to Herod here. So you got Herodias, you got Herodias' daughter, already in a mixed-up situation, but back to Herod. Herod once visited his brother Philip, and he met Philip's wife, Herodias. And Herod became infatuated with her. He was obsessed with her, and even she, him. She loved what he saw, and he loved what he saw. And so they convinced each other to divorce their spouses, and they married. So Herod was not only an adulterer, of going after his brother's wife, but also he's mixed up in incest, having married his living brother's wife. So already here, we've got Leviticus, the Ten Commandments, and the commandment which speaks against adultery and wrongful divorce. Those things are broken. And it was John the Baptist at that point who had an audience with Herod, and he confronted Herod in his sin. And at one point when he had his intention, John the Baptist simply preached that to Herod from the Scripture. And Herod, we're told, and this in another passage, then hated John the Baptist for having brought that to his attention. But on top of that, it's clear that Herodias equally had disdain for this preacher of God's truth to the degree that she was waiting for a moment to trap John and Herod in a death match. Now, I say trap because in verses 6 through 8, a birthday party came. Those were always debauchery places. And Herodias would know that. So she took advantage of it. Imagine, recognizing what your husband is about to do, but then taking advantage of that. She then had her daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, she had her daughter, who was a dancer, dance in such a way to seduce her husband and to trap him in an oath. You see here, what did John call Herod to do? He called John, or he, John called Herod to obey God's word in what it says about holiness, what it says about purity. How did Herod reject the message of Christ? Because he rejected the message of the scripture's call to personal holiness. Friend, again, what does Jesus continually call us to do? Obey God's word. Obey his word. And by rejecting John's message, Herod rejected God. By hearing about Jesus and fearing that John's back from the dead, he's still rejecting God's message. And for us, we need to understand the gravity of the kingdom of heaven being revealed, preaching, and being rejected again. Matthew shows us who Jesus is through the death of John. Who is Jesus? He is the delivered holy gospel of God who's rejected for sexual pleasure. Why? Why was Jesus' message? Why was John's message? Why was God's truth being rejected? Because Herod didn't want to be holy. He wanted to be lustful. He wanted to be incestuous. He wanted to be an adulterer with his brother's wife. Again, sin doesn't lead to logic. It leads to chaos. Now you can imagine them. It's okay. You can hear Herod and Herodias say on their way to divorce court, we're in love. God wants us to be happy. It's fine. Everyone has a messy family. But what were they rejecting? Purity. 
Classic sin. Sin rejects the call to holiness. Think of it this way. Sin hates holiness. What sin does, if you think about it as a trajectory going forward, it is aimed at one thing. You may think it's aimed at pleasure. You may think it's aimed at joy. You may think it's aimed at a happier life. What sin is always aimed at with hatred is holiness. And this text exposes the sinner's disposition towards God. What is a sinner? Hate God in purest form. What caused Herod rejecting Jesus? The message of Christ. How? Through pursuing impurity. But also, secondly, within the second point, that he rejected John the Baptist's call to submission. Herod rejected John the Baptist and therefore Jesus' message of a call to submission. Very quickly, what I mean by this is that it's one thing to say, okay, that's a sinful pursuit. Uh, there's also a righteous pursuit. So there's sinful pursuits and there's a righteous one. Herod could have done that. He could have recognized just in confession form without repentance. Confession is acknowledging what I'm doing is wrong. Repentance is actually turning away toward what is right and away from wrong. He could have just recognized that. But what he also didn't do was trust God with his own pleasure in pursuing righteousness. He would be blessed If he would have trusted God, he would have been blessed and satisfied by God in a way that he wasn't thinking possible. Or put another way, he didn't submit himself to God's will. We went from, we went on from, we see that he was aiming to submit himself to his own will, aiming for pursuing what he felt like he wanted and hoped for and thinking that it would all work out. He wanted, he saw something that he wanted and he wanted it now and he went for it thinking this would be helpful. This would be good. Imagine my kingdom now. Now I have a wife that I really want. And what did it get him? Paranoia, fear, sin, and terror. Now, Christian, all of us are tempted to sin. And with every choice of sin in front of you, you really do have a choice. Listen to me here. You really do have a choice. You can either trust God to bless you through pursuing righteousness or you can trust yourself in pursuing sin. You've got two choices. With every, as sin pursues you, you've got two choices. I can either trust God to flee it and pursue his righteousness, knowing that that will actually bring me greater joy, or I can trust myself, pulling up my own spiritual bootstraps, and I can fight through this, and it'll bring me more joy. I was asked, by several, uh, I was asked several months ago by a friend about pursuing purity. You could exchange, in this case, purity for honesty or humility or whatever. Imagine that you are a person who's like an accountant and you're in charge of everyone's bank account. How do you pursue honesty within that? What if someone traps you with divulging information like that? But I was being asked about pursuing purity. How can you pursue purity? My answer to us all is this, Christian, beg God to help you trust him. Ask him, God, help me trust you. In this, I told the person, I've never once been let down by God when asking him to help me fight the flesh. I've never once been let down by God when begging him, asking him to fight, to help me fight the flesh. Friend, beg him to bless your pursuit of not doing what the flesh and the devil are telling you. It's just once. You're not hurting anyone. Or God wants you to be happy. God does want you to be happy. And he supplies the means through pursuing righteousness. 
Friend, beg God. Beg God to help you trust him on what his word says is good, on what his word says is righteous and pure. And in Herod's case, he had a prophet of God. Think about it. You got me on a Sunday basis. What if you had a prophet of God saying, this is what the word says? He says it's not lawful. And it's like Herod looked at John and then looked at Herodias and said, I'm the law. And I do what I want. Friend, the world hates God and wants to normalize perversion. And we see that all around us every day. The world hates God and wants to normalize perversion. But friend, trust God to see him as holy and submit to his will. Otherwise, you'll be rejecting the message of Jesus. And his call to all of us is to repent of our sins and turn to him with trust that he will provide more blessing than we can ever imagine. The third thing I want you to notice here, I want you to notice the irony of Herod's rejection. I want you to notice the irony of Herod's rejection. Herod was doing whatever he wanted. Why? Why was Herod doing whatever he wanted? Well, ironically, he was doing whatever he wanted uh, because he thought this would bring him the most freedom. Why do we do whatever we want to do? Because we want to do what we want to do because we think this will bring us the most freedom. What's our deepest flesh desire? It's to do whatever we want. <laughs> what is the perfect Saturday for you? Whatever I want to do. I think it's ironic here to look at freedom on its face. Freedom is what sin and Satan promise. Eve was promised freedom of understanding at the beginning. David was pursuing freedom and pleasure when he went after Bathsheba. Herod was just going after what he wanted, a woman, for whatever reason. He wanted something that would make him feel good. And at his first encounter with John the Baptist, he was rebuked in his sin and any person, now think about this, any person of Herod's political and judicial stature could have easily put John to death right there and then. But Herod didn't. Why? Why didn't Herod put John the Baptist dead or, place him, or kill him right there? Well, in verse 5, it says, because he feared the people, because they held him as a prophet. And by doing so, he actually gains more freedom temporarily, gains more freedom politically, because who wants to have to rule a tetriarch that has Jewish people in it only to make that constituency a little bit more mad by killing one of their own? So let's just keep the peace. Let John live. It's fine. My wife's a little bit mad, but it's fine right now. All right. So Herod is pursuing freedom and what he wants, but he's also pursuing freedom politically and how people are going to react to him. But imagine that this freedom and realize that this freedom actually brings on itself, not freedom, but bondage. Ironically, sin promises freedom, but always delivers bondage. That's the one thing you can count on with sin, is more bondage on your heart. Think of it in verse 1. Herod heard of Jesus. People in the other Gospels debated about who this was. They said, maybe it's this guy, maybe it's that, maybe it's the recoming of Elijah. But what was going on in Herod's own fast-beating heart, pounding fear and paranoia in his heart, it wouldn't go away. John's dead, maybe he's back. Does that sound like freedom? Or what about Mary and Herodias? He got what he wanted. Sure, some people think it's an odd marriage. What marriage isn't odd? But he's free. But what did he get? Now, if you're a friend of Herod, even if you're this guy's friend, you would probably say to other people, yeah, he, he married something else. <laughs> He married a real evil woman. I mean, who, who plans a party like that? 
Who has an incestuous background like that? You might in the background go on, Herod, I don't know. I know you like it, but I don't know. Does that sound like freedom to you? Him being spoken about by others in that natural way? Herodias offered her own daughter to provoke her own husband so that in a euphoric moment, he would give away anything to her. That's some dark, evil bondage. Does that sound like freedom? When the daughter tells Uh, When the daughter tells Herod her request, she says something like, I want my mom's arch enemy who only quoted the Bible. I want his head to be taken off. But not like other people who are conquered. I want John's head on a platter like a pig in this party now. Sounds like real freedom, doesn't it? And you can see Herod's own remorse in verse 9. But, he also, but also his cowardness by succumbing to his wife's daughter's wish because he would look, why, powerless in the face of his own guests. A king at his own birthday party has to do a wish of someone who is seducing him. How free is this person really? How much promise has sin provided for him? Friends, you need to recognize that Herod is as free as any of you are in your own sin. Sin starts, and you can do a lot of things to put it away, but it becomes inflamed by something regularly, doesn't it, until what once was a harmless spark turns into a wildfire that is literally killing people. That's bondage. And that's the biblical portrayal of what any sin is in your heart. And the message ironically, that Jesus had been preaching seemingly to the ends of the earth in these guys' eyes. What the message of John the Baptist going to as far as he went was the message of freedom from that very bondage. Not by placing your trust in John, not by placing your trust in a law, not by placing your trust in an activity, not by placing your trust if you're fighting impurity, popping a band and all the lust will go away, but by placing your trust, ironically, in the very person who is being rejected. The message of the gospel is that all of us have sin within us naturally, and then we are very good about creating sin in us continually. And the only way to be freed from that bondage is by trusting in the Lord to save us, not only from the power of those sins, but also from the wrath that those sins will incur. And this is what Herod was rejecting. You you might look at him as a friend or as an onlooker. You can see a documentary series going on and saying like, Herod, you are literally doing everything backwards. Don't trust in yourself, trust in him. Yet sin just spirals everything out of control. The irony of rejecting John's message, rejecting the message of Jesus, rejecting the message of the kingdom of heaven is sickening lust that confronts all of us. And we think we're seeking peace and pleasure, but we're actually seeking wrath that we've brought on ourselves. But lastly, I want you to notice one final thing. This has been a lot of dark things unfolding in front of us, but lastly, I want you to notice the foretaste that this rejection provides. Why does Matthew place this passage here? Why does Matthew show this as an illustration of what, what the kingdom of heaven is like? Why does he show this as an illustration of what rejecting the message is like? The foretaste that Matthew gives us is one of great glory in this passage. The foretaste of what rejection ultimately looks like is glory. Look at the glorious care that John's disciples have. Look at verse 12. 
says there in the passage, and John's disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. We don't know what happened to John's head. There are lots of theories. Possibly his disciples were allowed to take it with his body and give it an honorable burial, but we know that his body was given a burial. But there is a contrast here. Remember the main character of the story? It seems to be John. I want you to look very briefly at the top of this passage. Who's the main character? It talks about Jesus. But then I want you to look at the tail. You know, I think this is like a long lizard or something. A top and a tail. Who's the last person mentioned in this passage? Jesus. That actually helps us understand that through all of this soap opera, through all of these characters and drama and blah, who is this exposing? The glory of Christ. Yet ironically, as this message starts with Jesus and ends with Jesus, and as Jesus was actually the person that this event is about, there's a contrast to how John's disciples treated him. John's disciples treated John and how Jesus' disciples would later treat Jesus. At John's arrest, his disciples would regularly come to him when he was in jail. But at Jesus' arrest, his disciples would desert him quickly. At John's beheading, his disciples wanted to take care of his body and give it a proper burial. But at Jesus' death, apparently none of the twelve would assist even in its own burial. It would be onlookers who would seek to serve Jesus' body at that point. Now, to some degree, this is highlighted by Mark's account of Jesus' family's rejection of him at Nazareth and John's own death. Mark here, if you think of Matthew, so put that aside. Where does, Matthew, where does Mark place the beheading of John? He places the beheading of John in between the family's rejection and then the commissioning of the twelve. So he says, you'll be reject- Mark portrays this as, you'll be rejected by your family. Oh, and if you preach my message, you'll be killed. And oh, by the way, go off and preach my message. You think, think of the glory that is being demonstrated here. Mark places the commissioning and mission of the twelve by Jesus after his rejection at home and just before the beheading of John. As if Mark is saying, you want to follow the Lord? It's going to be like that. Another thing that this shows us in glory is the tradition. I would imagine some of you are going to be watching the Masters this next week. The tech, no? Okay. <laughs> 20 people shake their head. Uh, well, you'll love this illustration. Um, uh, the, main tagline, <laughs> the main tagline for the Masters is a tradition unlike any other. And the tradition of God's prophets is one of being rejected by worldly, viewer, worldly rulers. And this foretaste for us, the rejection of the Son, the pure and true prophet, is being rejected by his own people. This is a foretaste of how Jesus' own people will react to him. God's plan is is unfolding in a remarkable, surprising way. The death of John the Baptist continues the tradition of a nation that murders its own prophets. But it also foreshadows the taking of the life of the last true prophet himself, Christ, whose life would be taken not by the hands of a Roman ruler, but by the hands of his own people. One way to look at this is to see the rejection and persecution of God's people and God's begotten son enduring and eventually having their lives ended by death. And friend, take account of the reality that it is the son of God himself who calls each of us to join him. In glory, yes, but if in need, death. For what? 
What is Jesus pursuing death for? The glory of the Father. What do we join Jesus in going to the ends of the earth for? The glory of the Father. But the third and last thing that this gives us a foretaste of in glory, it gives us a foretaste where the death of John is foretasting the very death of Christ. Obviously, a theme within this unit or this passage of Scripture is the striking parallel between the death of John the Baptist and the death of Jesus. One commentator called this a heavenly parable, as if a giant story is being told that uses the story of John the Baptist's beheading as a parable for what's coming to Christ. A Christological parable, they called it. But think of it, John was a messianic forerunner of Jesus, and that means he is also the forerunner of the messianic suffering and death. The, the people who were guilty of murdering John deserve pity to some degree. They, they really didn't know what they were being caught up in, right? They were just pursuing things on their own, and then look at what happens. They deserve some level of pity. They didn't know what they were doing at a larger scale. They were part, though, of God's larger plan, and this was a son, a cousin, a friend, a prophet who was murdered for speaking truth to a scoundrel. But it is God who had a purpose for it. It's a foretaste of what was going to come so that you here today will grasp. Think about it. What is the foretaste of this text? So that you here today will grasp the totality and love of God and Christ who also would be delivered unfairly. In the place of your own sin, John was delivered because he spoke. Jesus was delivered in your place. The glory that this foretaste is amazing. The death means more to the gospel's unfolding glory than being alive. For the one whose murder truly lives and those who murdered others are worse than dead. And in this case of John, he didn't and doesn't return from the dead to haunt the life of Herod. Herod was wrong and wanting to see this soap opera unfold. John didn't return from death. But in the case of Christ, which this gives us a foretaste of, he is the prophet who was murdered at the hands of a nation and will return from the grave to gloriously conquer the bondage of sin that we have coming from us. Friends, let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that in the goodness of your word, by the inspiration from your spirit, you teach us what it means to flee what is wrong. But God, we also ask that you would continue to lift up the view of your son in our eyes, that we would see him for who he is and know him for what he has done. Oh Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.